There is no one like Jesus Christ. Now, I need to start by making a little correction or a clarification from last week. Uh, This appears to have been more of a problem in the 9 o'clock service than in the 11, uh, but I figured I'd better say it to you guys anyways. Uh, Evidently, when I opened with that joke about how I met my wife, Christine, on a blind date in college, and when she laid eyes on me, uh, she tended to have an asthma attack so she could get out of the date. Everyone understood that the last part of that was a joke. But what we all didn't understand is that the whole thing was a joke. I never went on a blind date with Christine. Uh, That was just all part of the joke, and I apologize that I didn't clarify. Uh, My wife and I actually met at church. And uh, the one part of that little joke that was absolutely 100% accurate is that my wife was one of the prettiest little blonde girls I'd ever seen. And I fell in love with her, and uh, the rest is history. But anyways, I... uh, I found out, uh, she's not in the room, so I'll pick on her a little bit, found out that Rosie was telling her grandkids, oh yeah, Pastor Dane and Christine met on a blind date, and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I better clarify that. Every February, millions of Americans tune in to watch a little something we call the Super Bowl. Now, there are two camps who watch the Super Bowl, those who watch it for the football and those who watch it for the for the commercials. i got to know how many of you watch it for the football. All right, all five of you, that's wonderful. How many of you watch it for the commercials? Yeah, all two of you. Okay, no one watches the Super Bowl in this room. Anyways, Super Bowl 39, a brilliant 30-second commercial comes on. The company being advertised was AmeriQuest Mortgage Company. Opening scene, a husband with his shirt and tie on comes through the front door of his apartment after a long day's work. And he wants to do something special for his wife. So he's got in one hand a bag of groceries, and he's got a bouquet of flowers in the other hand. He rushes into his apartment, and there in the entryway to his apartment, his little white fluffy cat greets him. Well, the man runs into the kitchen, and he turns on the burner, puts a pot on there, pours in the spaghetti sauce in the pot to simmer the spaghetti sauce. He goes over to the table. He puts the flowers in a nice arrangement on the kitchen table uh, next to some candles that he's lit. He runs back into the kitchen, and he's chopping the vegetables with this big knife. As he's chopping the vegetables, the little fur ball jumps on top of the counter next to the spaghetti sauce pan. Guess what the little cat does? Slaps it with his paw. The whole pot falls on the floor, marinara sauce, spaghetti sauce everywhere on the floor. And then the cat if it wasn't bad enough, jumps off the counter into the middle of the puddle of spaghetti sauce on the floor. The man is frantic. He's got the big knife in one hand. He doesn't want the cat to make any more of a mess than it already has. So with his free hand, he grabs the cat by the scruff, picks it up just as his wife walks through the door. The look on her face is priceless. It's like she's watching Psycho, the cat murder edition or something. And so I love the little tagline that pops up as soon as you see the man with a knife in one hand, the cat in the other. And this is the tagline. The commercial ends with, if I can find it here, these words. Don't judge too quickly. We won't. And that really got me thinking this last week because this passage we're going to look at today, we're going to see that once again, people had some misunderstandings about John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to see in this passage today that some people jumped to the conclusion that John the Baptist was the promised Messiah. They were wrong. Others didn't even see Jesus in the crowd right under their noses, and they thought he was just an ordinary guy from an ordinary family that hailed from an ordinary town. They 
were just as wrong. So today, John the Baptist is going to set the record straight about who he is and about who Jesus Christ is. Amen? And so we're going to start with this question, who is John the Baptist? And we're going to pick up here in verse 19 of John chapter 1. Please follow along in your Bibles. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Well, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Amen? Amen. Well, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, we call the prologue. So those are the verses where... Uh, Jesus Christ is introduced as the Word of God, the one who created heaven and earth. He's introduced as the one who created everything we've ever seen and everything we've never even seen. He's presented as the one that came to bring two things to this earth that we desperately needed, grace and truth. How many of you are in need of a lot of God's grace in your life? I know that I am. How many of you want to hear the truth, the whole truth? And not, well, maybe not nothing but the truth, but you know what I mean. We want to hear the truth, don't we? The truth about God, the truth about how we can have a relationship with our creator. And Jesus came. We saw last week that he was the word of God made flesh. Jesus was both 100% God and also at the same time, 100% man. He was the God man born to save the world. And so in those first 18 verses in the prologue, we're learning about uh, Jesus Christ, this wonderful theological presentation of who Jesus is. And then we get to verse 19, and then we begin the narrative section of the book of John, where John is going to share some of the highlights of Jesus' life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. And so in this section, I I think John does some interesting things. He He doesn't tell us some of the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already told us. He says nothing about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. He says nothing about Jesus' childhood years growing up in Nazareth. He doesn't even talk specifically about Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan River or even Jesus being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He doesn't say any of that. He skips past that to an important part in Jesus' public ministry. And I want to point out something to you. At first glance, you may miss it. I had never really noticed it before in all the years I've been reading John. Skip past that last verse where we finished a moment ago. Look at verse 29. See how verse 29 begins? It says, the next day. See that? Really exciting stuff, isn't it? The next day. Uh, What's your point, Dane? Well, here's my point. Skip down a little further to verse 35. Notice how verse 35 begins. The next day. Now skip down to verse 43, the next day. Now skip to verse 1 of chapter 2. 
on the third day. So what's the point? Here's the point. John the Baptist, his ministry ushered in Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at that today. But when John the Apostle went to write his gospel account, he basically says, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already done a sufficient job in sharing the early years of Jesus, leading all the way up to his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. What I'm going to do is I'm going to share in chapters 1 and 2 the very first week of Jesus' public ministry. That's why it says the next day and then the next day. And then the next day, and then three days after that, John records for us here the first week in Jesus' public ministry. I think that's pretty exciting, don't you? Oh, yay, yay, Jesus, yay, yay. I am thrilled, and I cannot restrain my enthusiasm. Why is that exciting? It's exciting because if you follow any presidential candidate who actually gets elected, You'll find that time and again, any presidential candidate, as the election gets closer, he will say something like, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do in my very first day in the Oval Office. And that's what he or she will oftentimes do in their campaign speeches. Here's what I'm going to do on my first day. Or here's what I'm going to do in my very first week in Washington, D.C. And that fills the campaign speeches. And the the fans get excited because, oh, yeah, on day one or in the first week, this is what this candidate will do. So I've got to vote for him because even after one week, they'll do so much more than the other guy did in four years. And this goes on all the time in presidential elections. John the Baptist ushers in Jesus' ministry, and John the Apostle says, I'm going to share with all the adoring fans of Jesus what his first week of public ministry looked like. And remember what we were just told in the early parts of chapter 1, that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe, which means that the creator of the universe had thousands of years to plan what he was going to do in his very first week of ministry. And so you better believe that what Jesus did in his first week was really well thought out and was really powerful. And John, the writer of the gospel, says, you know what? Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't share with you some of the things that happened in the first week, but I am going to share those with you. I think that's pretty cool. John tells us in verse 19 a little bit about John the Baptist that paves the way for Jesus' first week of ministry. The Jewish leaders come up to John the Baptist. It says they were priests and Levites who had been sent. They come up to John the Baptist and they ask him who he was. The priests and Levites were interested in understanding who he was. Okay, John the Baptist, you're out here preaching. You're out here baptizing. We need to know who you are, who you are. And so John the Baptist uh, is described a little bit here in these verses. He's described a little bit. It's interesting, I found, as I was researching for this message this last week, there's several things that I'll share with you today that I hadn't really thought about before. One of those things I hadn't really thought about was John the Baptist's lineage. So John the Baptist, remember who his dad was? We're told in Luke chapter 1 his dad was named, anyone remember? Yeah, Zechariah. And Zechariah was a, he was a Levite, and he was also even beyond that a, a priest. He was in the line of Aaron. And so here's how it worked in Judaism. The only qualification for the priesthood was descent. Now, you had to be male. Sorry, ladies, you couldn't be a priest in Judaism. But assuming you were male, you had to be a descent of the first high priest, Aaron, the the brother of Moses. 
And so that's kind of an interesting thing. You could have been an excellent rabbi. You could know the Old Testament scriptures like the back of your hand. But if you weren't a descendant of Aaron, you could not be a priest. And so that was the one qualification. If a man was not a descendant of Aaron, he could never be a priest. If a man was a descendant of Aaron, catch this, nothing could keep him from being a priest. And so since Zechariah, dear old dad, was a priest... That means that John the Baptist actually was a priest also, just because of his descent. So that being the case, it was very natural for the priests and the priest's assistants, the Levites, to come check out what this rogue priest was doing out in the wilderness. So John the Baptist, being technically a priest, he didn't dress like any priest anyone had ever seen. They had never heard of a priest who wore camel's hair clothes and a leather belt around his waist. That's pretty weird for a priest. They're used to fancy garments on priests, not camel's hair. That was weird. It's kind of like if you came to uh, the service today and the the pastor's wearing burlap, you know, some potato sack or something. Well, whatever floats his boat. I've never seen a pastor wear that on a Sunday morning, but, you know, to each his own. They had never seen a guy dressed like this. They had never seen a guy eat what he ate. Remember what it says over in the gospel according to Mark chapter 1. It says that John was one that ate locust and wild honey. That's a weird diet for a priest. And they'd never heard a priest preach like he preaches, this fire and brimstone, turn or burn, message of repentance and baptism. We're going to talk in a few minutes a bit more about that baptism part. But they'd never seen a man who looked like this. They'd never seen a priest that ate like this. They'd never seen a priest or heard a priest that preached like this priest. And so they come to check him out. It says there that a group of priests and Levites came from Jerusalem to launch an investigation to find out who John the Baptist was, what he was doing, and why he was doing it. When they arrived, John the Baptist knew they wanted answers. And so, presumably, even without them asking their main question, he gives them the answer before they ask ask the question. He tells them flat out in verse 20, I am not the Christ. I know you want to know if I'm the Christ. The answer is no. I'm not the Christ. John the Baptist couldn't have been clearer than than he was with that answer. Well, John's answer did clear the air a bit, but not completely. The priests and Levites asked John in verse 21, All right, you're not the Messiah, the Christ, then who are you? They asked him the follow-up question, Are you Elijah? John responded, No, I'm not. Then they asked him a third question, Are you the prophet? John once again said, No, I'm not. You see, in the final verses of the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, a prophecy is given about Elijah, and it says that Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so that was written 400 years before Jesus was born. He had this 400-year period of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. And during that 400 years, the rabbis had come to the conclusion that what Malachi was really saying is, Elijah would somehow come back in the flesh to announce the Messiah's arrival. And so they believe the actual Elijah from the Old Testament that went up to heaven in that whirlwind of fire, they believe that he was going to come back and announce the Messiah's arrival. And so they ask him, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. Well, who's this prophet they're talking about? Well, that's a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. In that passage in Deuteronomy 18, God is giving the biblical test of a prophet, how to find out if a prophet is from God. 
And we talk about that here at Impact every once in a while. Long story short, uh, a prophet who is correct 99.9% of the time is a false prophet. And so in Old Testament times, a prophet who was correct 99.9% of the time ended up being a dead prophet. (laughs) Because if you were wrong even one time prophesying anything in the name of the Lord, if you were wrong a single time, they'd stone you to death. Because you never presume to speak in the name of the Lord unless it is absolutely the word of the Lord. And so that's the biblical test of a prophet in Deuteronomy 18. But in that same passage, it's announcing that one day the prophet will come. This isn't just a prophet. It is the prophet of all prophets, the coup de grace of all prophets, the, the prophet. And so they ask him, are you this prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18? And once again, John the Baptist says, no, I'm not. I'm not that prophet either. And so notice what they say. They kind of throw up their hands in verse 22 and ask, then who are you? You say you're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. And you say you're not the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Then who on earth are you, John? Tell us. All of these authorities from Jerusalem sent us to find out who you are, and we've got to relay some answer to them. Who are you? So you could kind of boil their question down to this. John, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Well, John the Baptist responded by pointing them to Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4. The passage where God promises to one day raise up a voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Isn't that a great passage? Make straight the way for the Lord. This prophecy was drawn from a familiar image. Here's how it worked in those days. When a king came into town, rarely was that visit from the king unannounced. Almost always, the king would make sure that town knew ahead of time that he was coming. And so a couple things needed to take place before the king showed up. Just like if someone was to come over to your house for dinner, and let's say it was the mayor of the city or maybe the governor of California, whoever it was, someone that you view as important, if they came over to your house, you would want to prepare, wouldn't you? Uh, you, you probably would make sure the bathroom looks kind of clean and at least the kitchen table looks pretty good. So we would prepare, right? And so it was similar when they knew the king was coming. Two main things had to happen. Number one, they had to have the town crier go into the middle of town and say, hey, the king's coming. He was announcing the king's coming. So everybody would catch word, right? They didn't have printed newspapers. Uh, they didn't have Wi-Fi and, you know, the latest news on their smartphones. And so they counted on some guy with a big mouth to yell, hey, the king's coming. And then second, what had to take place is the roads outside of town and the roads that went through town, they had to make sure those roads were in pretty good shape because the king was coming in his chariot. And they don't want him coming down, bouncing up and down the road like some of those roads in Atlanta, right? Whatever city you live in, you could pick roads in your town too, right? I live here in Apple Valley. There's plenty of terrible roads in this town too. They didn't want the king, you know, to get whiplash going over these bumpy roads and having his front wheel caught in a pothole and so they would have the road crews go out and they would take those rocks in the road and throw them off to the side they would take the potholes and fill them in with dirt to make the road smooth for the chariot of the king and so what is john the baptist saying here he's saying i I, i'm those guys i'm the guy that's going to the middle of town and saying hey jesus is coming jesus is coming Jesus is coming. The Savior of the world is coming. The Messiah is coming. Now, when the king came into town, did anyone remember the town crier once that a king came into town? No. 
He was ancient news. They're not focused on the guy yelling. They're focused on the king who's coming. And John says it's the same with me. How about when those guys came in with their shovels and filled in those potholes? John says, I'm that guy. Once the king rolls into town, no one's celebrating the guy that had the shovel and filled in the potholes. They're celebrating the king. And John says, I'm the guy with the shovel. I'm filling in the potholes. Don't look at me. Look at him. And we're going to see this throughout this passage. John is going to do this over and over. Do not look at me. I'm just the guy announcing his coming. I'm just the guy filling in the potholes. Look at him. I love how William Barclay puts it. He says, John the Baptist was what every true preacher and teacher ought to be. Only a voice, a pointer to the king. The last thing that he wanted anyone to do was to look at him. He wanted people to forget him and see only the king. He was only, as he saw, a signpost pointing to Christ. Isn't that good? He wanted people to forget him and only see Jesus. He wanted to be a pointer to the king. Do you want the same thing? Do you want people to forget you and just remember Jesus? Do you want to be one like a neon arrow that just points to Jesus with your life, with your words, with your actions, with your priorities, with your choices? That's what John the Baptist wants. Well, we discover in verse 24 that it wasn't just the priests and the Levites who were sent to find out who John the Baptist was. Some Pharisees had been sent as well. Remember, the Pharisees were the Jewish legalists. They prided themselves in obeying all 613 laws of Moses in the Old Testament. They obeyed dozens and dozens of other laws on top of those that their ancestors had added on to the Old Testament law. These guys were the legalists. And so they were sent as well to find out about who John the Baptist was. And they kind of piggyback on that conversation that had just taken place between John the Baptist and the priests and the priest helpers, the Levites. Notice what they say in verse 25. They're clearly not satisfied with how John the Baptist had been answering the questions he had been asked. So they ask him this important follow-up question. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah? And you're not the prophet. Why are you baptizing? It's actually a question that was on a lot of people's minds because in those days, baptisms like he was doing were really a pretty new thing. Why is that? Well, in John the Baptist's day, Jews were never baptized. Did you know that? In John the Baptist's day, Jews were never baptized. Baptisms were done, but they were always on Gentiles. Gentiles were baptized when they were converting to Judaism. And so if you were not Jewish by ethnicity, if you were not born a Jew, but you realized that the Jewish people were the chosen nation of God who followed the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, if you wanted to become Jewish, one of those hoops you had to jump through is you had to be baptized in water. But a Jew would never be baptized because they were already Jewish. Chuck Swindoll describes it really well. He writes, A new Gentile convert to Judaism was ceremonially immersed in pure water as a symbolic once-for-all cleansing from sin before entering the Hebrew covenant community. It was supposed to be administered by priests, not by a wild-eyed, locust-eating firebrand from the wilderness. It was intended for Gentiles, not Jews, already born into Abraham's covenant with God. 
It was to be done in pure water in the temple or at least in a synagogue, not in the muddy Jordan River. The Jordan River is kind of nasty. And so on several levels, this is really weird what John the Baptist was doing. He gives the rite of baptism a fresh new application. As he called Jews to repent of their sins and be baptized, he was basically saying, because of your sin, you are separated from God and need to be cleansed. It doesn't matter that you're ethnically a Jew. It doesn't matter that you're a descendant of Abraham. It doesn't matter that you claim to follow Moses. None of that will matter on Judgment Day because your sin separates you from a holy God. You need to come to God just like a Gentile would come to God. Not hanging on to your laurels, not hanging on to your ancestry, but coming humbly to Him, turning from your sin, repenting, and being baptized and getting right with God. If you don't do that, it won't matter that you're Jewish. You'll fall under the judgment and the wrath of Almighty God. That was a powerful fire and brimstone type message, especially for Jews that thought they were automatically a shoe in for heaven because they were Jewish. Notice that John the Baptist doesn't directly answer the Pharisees' question about why he baptizes in water there in the Jordan River. Instead, in verses 26 and 27, he he takes the opportunity to once again point to Jesus. Remember, he does this over and over again in this passage. He says, among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In John the Baptist's day, guess what the lowest task of the lowest servant was in a Jewish home? Yeah, middle class Jewish families, upper class Jewish families oftentimes had servants. And as you might guess, the servants had a certain pecking order. There were lead servants that didn't have to do the most menial menial tasks. And then you had your entry-level servants who had to do the most menial tasks. And the most menial task of the lowest servant in the home was dealing with the stinky feet. And so when the master of the house or his family members came in, it was that lowest servant's job to get down on his hands and knees and untie those sandals take off those sandals, and wash those stinky feet. And so what is John the Baptist saying here? He's saying that the one coming after me, the promised Messiah, is so much greater than I am. I am not even worthy to be his lowest servant carrying out the most menial task in the house. That's how great he is. That's how much far superior he is to me. I'm not even worthy to do the lowliest task in his house. What an amazing statement. John the Baptist was a very, very humble man. Here in John 1, verse 27, John the Baptist says that the one coming after him is so far superior to him, he can't even put it into words. Do you see what John the Baptist is doing here? He's saying, stop looking at me. Stop focusing on me. Focus on him. Stop thinking I'm all that. I'm not. I'm just a guy calling that the the real important guy's coming. I'm just the guy with the shovel filling in the potholes. Stop looking at me. Focus on him. Look at him. Follow him. It grieved the heart of John the Baptist to realize that the crowds were focused too much on him and focused too little on Jesus. And it should grieve every Christian leader today when Christians do the same. When Christians focus on a human 
Christian leader instead of focusing on Christ. Far too many Christians are fixated on their pastor instead of being fixated on Christ. Too many Christians today are focused on their favorite worship leader and focused far too little on Christ. He's called us to focus on him. But John the Baptist had it right. On our very best day of ministry, we still aren't worthy to even untie the sandals of Jesus. That's just the reality of the matter. So ministry should never be about drawing attention to ourselves. We're simply called to be neon arrows pointing people to the greatest man who has ever walked this earth. The word of God made flesh. Jesus Christ. Let's pick up in verse 29. John's words to us and his words to the crowd leading up through verse 28 were powerful, but they get even more powerful beginning in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. He's referring back, of course, to Jesus' baptism about 40 days earlier. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Isn't that good? In these verses, John tells us what happened on day two of Jesus' public ministry. A day earlier, John told the crowds and the Jewish leaders plainly, I am not the Christ, but among you stands one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Here on the very next day, Jesus emerges from the crowd and he walks toward John the Baptist. And John the Baptist knew exactly who he was because God the Father had already revealed that to him. It had been over 40 days since John had baptized Jesus, but John would never forget the face of Jesus. He would know it anywhere. He knew exactly who Jesus was. So before Jesus even had a chance to say, hey, John, how you doing? Good to see you today. Before Jesus ever even greets John the Baptist, John yells out, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Well, last week I asked an important question that we answered last week. Of all the names the Apostle John could have called Jesus by in John chapter 1, why did he choose the name the Word of God? We answered that question last Sunday. I want to ask an equally important question today. Of all the names the Apostle John, or I should say, of all the names that John the Baptist could have called Jesus by here in this verse, why did he call him the Lamb of God? Who takes away the sins of the world. Why did he call him the Lamb? There are many names he could have chosen to call Jesus by. Why does he call him the Lamb of God? Well, there are at least four possible reasons why he called him the Lamb of God. Let's go through these quickly. Number one, first possibility, John could have been thinking about the Passover lamb. Remember the Passover Old Testament times? uh, For uh, uh, several hundred years, the Jews were uh, captive there in Egypt for 400 years. They were slaves in Egypt. And God raised up Moses to deliver them on the final night they were in Egypt. Remember, they were supposed to kill 
that precious little lamb and take its blood and put it on the doorpost of their front door. And if you were to connect the dots of the blood, you would have a cross. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus dying on the cross to save our sins. The death angel, when the death angel passed over, spared the lives of those in the homes that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Maybe that's what John the Baptist had in mind here. Second possibility, John could have been thinking of the lambs that were sacrificed morning and evening every day at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He could have been thinking of Jesus as the one who would be slain once and for all because those lambs were sacrificed in order to cover sin, but only Jesus had the power to take away sin. Amen? Aren't you glad your sin's not simply covered? Aren't you glad your sin is actually taken away as far as the east is from the west? Third possibility, John could have been thinking of what Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah eleven nineteen, and what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, 7 about the coming Messiah who would suffer and die for the people of Israel. Maybe John the Baptist understood some of these prophecies. The fourth possibility you might think is a, a, a little bit odd. You see, when we think of a lamb, especially in the context of a Bible study or a sermon, when we think of a lamb, we think of a helpless little stupid creature, right? You know, it's fluffy, it's cute, but kind of dumb and can't really defend itself. How many of you have ever seen any sort of documentary about a bighorn sheep? Live up there in the mountain crags. Those things got the big old horns in front. They're the ones that will come down off an embankment running full speed headfirst into another ram's head. How many of you would ever like to headbutt a bighorn sheep? If you do, your head will never be the same. And you'll be meeting Jesus in the pearly gates there. <laughs> because you're not going to survive coming head to head with a bighorn sheep. And so in the Old Testament times, it was actually a symbol of a king's power, that sheep. And so especially a horn sheep in the Old Testament times, it was a symbol of a conquering king. And so possibly John had this in mind when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Maybe he's thinking Jesus is the conquering king who will come and rid this world of sin once and for all. He's going to take away the sin of the world. In all likelihood, there's a combination probably of all four of these. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the sacrifice at the temple. Jesus is the one that the prophets have told us about. And Jesus is the conquering king. This title, Lamb of God, is one of the most powerful titles of Jesus in the New Testament. William Barclay makes this excellent point. He writes, There is sheer wonder in this phrase, the Lamb of God. It haunted the writer of Revelation. Twenty-nine times he used it in the book of Revelation. It becomes one of the most precious titles of Christ. In one word, it sums up the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the suffering, and the triumph of Christ. That's true, isn't it? When you think of Jesus as the Lamb of God, think of His love for you and me. Think of His sacrifice for you and me. Think of His suffering for you and me. And think of His triumph for you and me. Because one day we will sing with the angels in heaven to the Lamb who was slain, but is now the conquering King. Oh, we praise the Lamb. And that's one of the reasons so great that we had that song earlier in the service, singing about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One of the most amazing insights I came across this past week as I was studying this passage was an insight from Warren Wiersbe. I'd never thought of this before. I thought this was really, really good. He writes, In one sense, the message of the Bible can be summed up in this title, The Lamb of God. The question in the Old Testament is, Where is the Lamb? 
In the four Gospels, the emphasis is, behold, the Lamb of God, here he is. And in the final book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, after you've trusted him, you sing with the heavenly choir, worthy is the Lamb. Isn't that good? You could summarize the entire Bible, all 66 books, by focusing on the Lamb of God. The Old Testament, in chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible, Adam and Eve blow it. Sin enters the world. They're separated from God. They're separated from each other. And so throughout the Old Testament is this cry, where is the sacrifice that's needed? How can we be forgiven? How can we be made right with God once again? How can we go to heaven someday? Where's the lamb? Because these little lambs were slitting their throats day in and day out, and it ain't working. Where is the lamb? And then Jesus Christ comes as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all of us who accept him as Savior and Lord, begin following him as Savior and Lord, and serve him as Savior and Lord, can look forward to the day when all these problems and all this illness and all this death and all this dying and all these funerals and all this sin is behind us, and we get to be with him in glory, singing, Worthy is the lamb who has taken away the sins of the world. That's the Bible in a nutshell. A search for the Lamb and the discovery that the true Lamb of God is Jesus Christ. If you look carefully at what John the Baptist says in verses 31 and 32, it's also in verse 33, it really demonstrates how humble and honest of a man he was. Notice what he says there. He says, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that remarkable? Especially when you understand that back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 41, John the Baptist's mom... And Jesus's mom knew each other. They were cousins, right? And remember when Mary first gets the news that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon her and she's going to give birth to Jesus, she runs off to be with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth at that point is six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And as soon as Mary comes into the presence of John the Baptist's mom, John the Baptist jumps in her womb, remember? And so John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, Certainly, they had rubbed shoulders with each other and seen each other during their first 30 years of life here on earth. So it's pretty remarkable that John the Baptist says, I didn't know him. And he says it twice. I myself didn't know him. How could he not know him? It was his cousin. They got together for parties and events every once in a while. They didn't live in the same town, but certainly they'd seen each other on several occasions. How could he say he didn't know him? And I think it boils down to this. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was, but until recently he didn't know what Jesus was. Amen? Now he knew. So he boldly proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in case that wasn't clear enough for everybody who was listening to him on that day, in verse 34, John the Baptist says loud and clear for all to hear, I have seen and I testify that he is the Son of God. That's pretty clear, isn't it? He's the Lamb of God, and He is the Son of God. Well, I want to share with you three life lessons that we can pull from this great passage today, and wish we had a little bit more time on each of these, but we'll take the time we have and look at these three important lessons. I hope that you'll apply this to your life today. We don't just come into the house of the Lord to learn more and fill our heads with more knowledge 
we learn so we can serve Jesus Christ better with that knowledge that we receive. Life lesson number one. Fulfilling God's will for your life isn't just about knowing who you are. It's also about knowing who you aren't. Amen? One more time. Fulfilling God's will for your life isn't just about knowing who you are. It's about knowing who you aren't. John the Baptist was one of the most effective followers of Christ in the New Testament, in part because he knew exactly who he wasn't. Time and time again, his followers were pretty misguided and tried to lift him up on a pedestal and make him out to be something greater than he really was. And he consistently, every single time, forced himself down off that pedestal to where God had really called him to be. Every time he refused to be put up on that platform. As verse 20 tells us, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Let me ask you, Do you know who you are? And secondly, do you know who you aren't? Do you know who you are in Christ? And do you know who you aren't in Christ? Those are two very important questions that we need to ask ourselves. We need to stop trying to be someone that we're not. We need to stop pretending to be greater than Christ has called us to be. Now, Christ doesn't want you to be less than he's he's called you to be either. Being less than he's called you to be is just as bad as being more than he's called you to be. He wants you to be who he has called you to be, just like John the Baptist, who is exactly who Christ had called him to be. Know who you are and know who you aren't. Life lesson number two. The greatest Christian leaders are those who use the spotlight to shine a brighter spotlight on Jesus. Amen? Read that with me. The greatest Christian leaders are those who use the spotlight to shine a brighter spotlight on Jesus. Read it with me like you mean it. The greatest Christian leaders are those who use the spotlight to shine a brighter spotlight on Jesus. The great devotional writer Oswald Chambers said it so well. He wrote, that man is most successful who attaches the affection of his followers more to Christ than to himself. Isn't that good? He said, that is an effective Christian leader. Attach the affections of your followers more to Jesus, more than to yourself. If you are a leader of any kind, your followers inevitably will like you. It just kind of comes with the territory. If most of your followers don't like you, they're not going to be following you very long, right? It's natural for your followers to like you. But the question is, As a Christian leader, are you leading those who follow you to like Jesus even more? It's natural for your followers to like you. That's okay that they like you. But do you lead them to like Jesus even more? Those of you who are parents, your kids love you, I hope. That's natural. It's expected for your kids to love you. Those of you who are grandparents, your grandkids love you. It's expected that they love you. It's good that they love you. But the question is, as leaders in your family, are you leading your kids and your grandkids to love Jesus even more? It's great that they love you, but do you lead them to love you more? Do you lead them to love you more, love him more? As as you lead at times, there will be certain followers of you who think too much of you and think too little of Jesus. So we have to make sure that we do everything in our power 
to steer their affections to Christ. The most effective preachers don't leave the congregation saying, Wow, what a wonderful pastor. What a wonderful preacher. The most effective pastors are those that leave the congregation saying, What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Savior Jesus is. The best worship leaders are not those who leave the congregation saying, Wow, what an awesome singing voice she has. But instead leave the congregation saying, What an awesome God we serve. Our God is an awesome God. Amen? Shine the brighter spotlight on Jesus. God gives you the opportunity to be in the spotlight. Shine a brighter one on Christ. Finally, life lesson number three. People will be more likely to listen to what you have to say about Christ when you are humble and transparent. Read that with me. People will be more likely to listen to what you have to say about Christ when you are humble and transparent. Some people might think that John the Baptist, honestly, was a bit of a moron. Not because he dressed weird or ate weird stuff, but think about it. He was the cousin of Jesus, and somehow for 30 years he was oblivious to the fact that Jesus was the Christ and the Son of the living God. Somehow he was oblivious to that. How, how did that happen? Some people might think maybe he wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. A taco shy of a combo plate. Something's going on with John. Because how could he miss this reality right in front of his face? And the scriptures don't really answer that question other than John himself testifying, I didn't know it was him until the Spirit of God descended on him in the form of a dove and the Father in heaven said, he's the man. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so scripture doesn't want us to dwell on the IQ level of John the Baptist. I think at this point it wants us to dwell on the humility and the transparency of John the Baptist. Some people in the crowd may have thought he was an idiot. That's okay. Most people were more likely to listen to John the Baptist because of his honesty and because of his sincerity. And I want to say the same to you today. Some people around you will never listen to what you have to say about Jesus Christ. And you could all day long until you're blue in the face say, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Don't focus on me. Focus on Jesus. You could be saying that day and night to some family members and some friends and some co-workers and some neighbors. And some people will never, ever listen to you. But others will as you share about Christ humbly, with transparency, letting them know that you're all, not all that. Some of us have a tendency to think we are greater than we really are. You're not as great as you think you are. Some of us have a tendency to have people focus on us and we savor that instead of taking that spotlight and focusing it on Jesus. Just be humble. Don't pretend to be anything or anyone that you're not. Don't pretend that you weren't an idiot before you accepted Christ because you were. Some of us, like me, are still an idiot today, and but God's helping me with my idiotness. How many of you agree He's helping you with your idiotness? We're a work in progress. We're not there yet, but by God's grace, He's taken us there. When it comes down to it, the greatest sign of any leader is how much we lead people to Christ. 
And so when all is said and done, when I leave this earth, if everyone forgets my name, that's okay. As long as they don't forget the name of Jesus that I preached. As long as they don't forget the name of Jesus that I stood for. If they forget me but remember Jesus, that's a life well lived. If they forget you but remember Jesus, that's a life well lived for you. And we both can savor those words that Jesus will speak to us both one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Because Jesus understands better than we do. I cannot save a single soul. I cannot soften a single hard heart. I can't open a single closed mind. But Jesus can do all of that, no problem. Because he is the creator of this universe. He is the word made flesh. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he is the son of God. Who's our only hope? Let's point people to Jesus. Father, we thank you for this wonderful example of John the Baptist who did such a marvelous job pointing people to Jesus. May we do the same. We're sinners saved by grace, but you've given us a very, very important task. When we have opportunities to influence, may we influence people to focus on Christ. When you give us opportunities to be in the spotlight, whether it's a physical spotlight like, spotlight like uh, is on the stage right now or a metaphorical spotlight, whatever chance you give us, Lord, to be in the spotlight, may we use that opportunity to shine a brighter spotlight on Jesus. God, I thank you for giving us opportunities to speak for you, to share you, to point people to Christ. And if there's anyone here today who's never made a decision to accept Jesus as their Savior and Lord, I, I pray that they would make that decision right now, that they would come to you humbly in prayer and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I am a sinner. I have failed to trust you. I have failed to obey you. Please forgive me. Please cover my sin, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Come into my life and wash me clean. Give me a brand new start with you as my Savior, as my Lord. I promise to trust you. I promise to love you and to obey you every day of my life. You are now my Savior and Lord. Please come into my life. I commit to you today. In Jesus' name.